0: as much or have been busy on the front lines David's gonna fill us in so it's gonna be part of a two-part series so he'll talk this Friday as well as next Friday I just wanted to let you guys know that we'll be looking at the chat box on the right side so you can ask questions if you want David will keep his eye on it and if he's able to he'll stop and answer the questions along the way or if you wait till the end you can ask questions Um, he will repeat the question and then ask if the speaker wants to Uh, verbally kind of communicate or he can just read the question out loud um, and keep you muted. In in the meantime, I'm going to mute everyone so there's no feedback and we're going to go ahead and get started. So take it away, Gordo.
1: Hey guys, uh, I'm David Gordon. I'm one of the critical care fellows, like Andy said. I did my EM residency here and then I left and went to Studybrook where I did a recess fellowship and then I came back to do more critical care. So uh, I'm talking today about COVID controversies. I was pretty lucky that my schedule kind of fell on. It's a little light right now. So I've uh, had the opportunity to sit at home and just kind of read about all this stuff and watch it evolve. So today I want to talk about some COVID controversies. I have no conflicts of interest uh, except for one, which is that everyone should stay home uh, if you can. My objectives today are to understand the coagulopathy of COVID, understand the risks of aerosolization with high flow and non-invasive support, and what some of that evidence is, and understand some of the physiology uh, and evidence behind awake proning. So, first off, the coagulopathy of uh, COVID. So there have been there's been a lot of discussion about uh, micro thrombosis and different kinds of thromboembolic events going on with COVID. There's a couple of case reports, a total of three patients with PEs. There's a case report of acrocyanosis or ischemia with seven patients. There's some unpublished case reports of acute type 1 MIs. There's some questions of, is this related to AKI? Questions about uh, DIC. And when we look at the autopsies of patients, we see some blood vessel congestion and some small vessel hyaline thrombi. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there but not lots of hard evidence regarding the existence of these thromboembolic events. So let's take a look at what there is. In the case series of seven patients that got published in Wuhan, there were seven patients with an average age of 59, and they had of places you'd expect, fingers and toes, they had some skin bulla and some dry gangrene. Um, I only had access to this uh, as the abstract because I don't speak Mandarin. Um, but they had elevated D-divers, fibrinogen, and fibrin degradation products in most patients. I don't know what that means. Uh, and the PT was prolonged in four. I also saw that D-dimers and the fibrin degradation products increased um, with the progression of disease. Six of the patients got low molecular weight heparin, um, and the D-dimer and fibrin degradation products decreased, and five of those patients died. So it's probably not good uh, if they hit the door and they already have this going on. What's the real risk of uh, venous thromboembolism in these patients? Um, This is a retrospective study that uh, is from Shanghai. Uh, One of the risks with all the COVID literature is that it's coming out very quickly and it's not all peer reviewed. So this paper is not yet peer reviewed, but there's 138 patients in Shanghai, uh, almost 11% of which were critically ill with an average age of 52. And 40.6% of the patients had uh, a comorbidity. Most of the critically ill patients were older, had comorbidities, and they had higher D-dimers. They, their algorithm for anticoagulating patients was splitting patients up by uh, the POWDA score, which is a risk of how coagulopathic they are, and then the improved score to uh, grade how likely they are to bleed. So a powder score of greater than four is a risk for VTE, and an improved score of greater than seven is a risk of, uh, of bleeding. So uh, fifteen. So, the total of 23 patients had a powder score of greater than four. Fifteen of them were critically ill and seven weren't. And then the improved score was a total of uh, nine. Seven of those got low-dose AC, and two of them were placed on SCDs for the higher improved scores. In patients that were high-risk bipoda and had ele- elevated D-dimers, they got VTE scans uh, for DVTs, and four of those patients had VTEs on days 3, 8, 10, and 18. You can see most of them were older, age 70, 64, and 64. They all had elevated D-dimers except for patient 2. Patient 2 was 25 obese, had a low D-dimer, but his peaked on day 14, or spiked on day 14, rather. And he ended up on ECMO and had a massive hemothorax. and He was the only one that died. Uh, There's a couple of small events of bleeding events, three microscopic hematurias, one mild GI bleed, one moderate epistaxis, and one severe hemothorax that was in our 25-year-old. Overall, three of these DVTs occurred in critically ill patients. So that's about a 20% risk of VTE in critically ill COVID patients. How about our coagulation parameters? There's been a lot of discussion about what their coagulation profiles look like. So compared to uh, healthy volunteers, this is a study of 94 COVID patients compared to 40 controls, 49 of which were ordinary in disease severity, 35 of which were severe, and 10 were critical. Um, On their initial labs, COVID patients had higher D-dimers, higher fibrin degradation products, higher fibrinogen. Uh, higher PT activity percent compared to their healthy controls. When we broke it out further by severity, uh, they didn't find any difference between PT or AT, but they did find D-dimer was higher in the severe group than in the control and ordinary group, and that FDP products were also higher in the ordinary and severe patients. And then in the most severe patients, thrombin times were also critically shorter. On admission, we know some labs give us a fair amount of data. So uh, thrombocytopenia in a meta-analysis of just about 1,800 patients from nine studies with 22.4% who had severe disease showed thrombocytopenia was associated with mortality and disease severity. And then the Zhao cohort showed that D-dimer, an elevated D-dimer over one, was associated with an odds ratio of in-hospital mortality of 264 and then you can see that over time during the hospitalization, the D-dimers further differentiated survivors from non-survivors. The coagulation profile as a whole um, showed us kind of similar to what we already suspected based on what we've seen before. So this is a study of survivors versus non-survivors of 183 patients in Tanji Hospital with an average age of 54, 41% had comorbidity. 11.5% of this cohort died 43-ish percent were discharged. And then this is another risk of the COVID literature. A whole bunch of patients kind of are still hanging out in the hospital and haven't either progressed to death or discharge. They found that uh, on admission, the D-dimers, the fiber degradation products, and the PTs were all significantly elevated in patients who were non-survivors as compared to survivors. And that over the course of the hospitalization, both the fibrinogen and the activated thrombin both decreased when comparing survivors to non-survivors. So about 71.4% of this cohort developed uh, DIC, and it, or the non-survivors developed DIC versus only 06 of survivors, and that happened about four days into admission. So we know these patients are coagulopathic. It seems like D-dimer is pretty informative in terms of where these patients were going, both in terms of their in-hospital mortality, and in terms of their overall coagulopathy. What should we do about it is another question. So this was a study of 449 patients with severe COVID. 99 of them got heparin. It was usually low molecular weight heparin for seven days or more. And overall, across the entire cohort, there was no difference in mortality for those who did or did not get heparin. But If we further subdivided patients into patients with an elevated D-dimer of six times the upper normal, the upper level, the upper limit of normal, or a six score of greater than four, those patients did have mortality benefit. And for those of you who are not familiar with the six score, uh, the the inputs are the prothrombin time, their platelet count, and then the total SOFA score, and either. Uh, The PT or the coagulation, those have to at least add up to two. But as uh, one of my attendings frequently reminds me, our inflammatory and our coagulation cascade are pretty intimately linked. And we know that one of the things that's elevated in COVID is IL-6. So I was wondering, is there an association between IL-6 and the coagulation cascade? And I have to admit that when I went into emergency medicine, I never considered that I'd be thinking about IL-6. Uh, so, IL 6 we know is elevated in these patients, and after day four, we can see it also separates our survivors from our non survivors. IL 6 uh, increases the extrinsic pathway, it increases uh, platelets and fibrin clot formation, it increases thrombin, antithrombin, three complexes, and the prothrombin activation of F1F2, or F1 plus two. We have a drug that targets. IL-6, which is tocilizumab, and I was wondering if tocilizumab had any impact on our coagulation profiles. I don't see any data specific to COVID uh, regarding the answer to this question, but I did find it in rheumatoid arthritis. So this is a study of 15 patients um, versus 40 healthy controls, eight of which were uh, novel uh, tocilizumab patients, and four of which are the rest had been on tocilizumab for maintenance therapy. We can see initially that the F1, F2, and the D-dimers are elevated uh, in the naive group. But at four weeks, both the D-dimers and the F1 plus two products are decreased. And we see a similar phenomena with our ESR and CRP with our inflammatory cascade. So that tells me that not only that tocilizumab may have An impact both on our inflammatory cascade, but also on our coagulation cascade if indeed the coagulation is feeding some of these thromboembolic events. So, the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis came out with their guidelines for checking coagulation and how we should treat people. So, admission labs, they said we should check D dimers, which I think is reasonable based on what we've learned so far, PT and a platelet count. I don't know that we need to check anything beyond a dimer at this point. We should be monitoring the D-dimers, PT, platelet counts, and fibrinogen. And then we should consider low molecular weight heparin in all COVID admissions in the absence of a contraindication. And if patients start bleeding, things should go along the normal bleeding guidelines. So objective number one, uh, our coagulation parameters can be used for risk stratification. These patients are high risk for coagulopathy, heparin, and anti-inflammatory patients. Uh, and understanding that may be beneficial. This is not the coagulation cascade. This is for those of you who had a chance, while all of you guys have been hard at work, uh, most of the rest of the world has been watching Tiger King on Netflix. Uh, It's a pretty wild ride for those of you who haven't gotten a chance. Uh, I see there's a question. So uh, the question is prophylactic uh, or full dose, uh, so there's a couple questions, low molecular weight, heparin. I don't know that we have definite answers for how we should be dosing our anticoagulation um, and specifically for anti-inflammatory meds. I, I think tocilizumab makes a lot of sense. The steroid data is a little more conflicting in these patients. Um, they didn't rec- uh, those were daily labs that they recommended John. Uh, the question was, did they recommend the frequency of monitoring? So uh, objective number two. Um, and Dr. McCurdy asked, is there any mention of TEG or Rotem in these patients? Not that I saw, although I think that'd be really interesting to look at. It does seem like their uh, coagulation profile tends towards uh, a more hemorrhagic form of, or sorry, a more thromboembolic form of DIC. Than a uh, than hemorrhagic, but I think you know a tag would certainly give us more specific and more targeted information than just checking the labs that we're checking now. Um, so the recommendations for a high flow ver- nasal cannula versus non invasive. This has been a real area of uh, debate. If, You are looking at the foam world. There's a lot of people who are saying, you know, I can't use high flow. I can't use non-invasive. What am I supposed to do uh, with with these patients? So what's the actual evidence here? So the Society of Critical Care Medicine recommends that we use high flow over conventional oxygen and over non-invasive. And they say that we can use non-invasive if high flow is not available and the patient doesn't need to be intubated right away. Uh, Anzix basically says high-flow nasal oxygen is recommended for hypoxia as long as everyone's got PPE and it should be in a negative pressure room and they recommend against the routine use of non-invasive but if you're gonna use it a negative pressure room is preferable and the World Health Organization is a little more agnostic on which one you pick uh, but they say both require close monitoring and airborne precautions. Historically there's been some debate about the risk of aerosolization in healthcare, uh, nosocomial infections with non-invasive. So Tran et al uh, says the uh, hazard ratio is 3.1. And these are are kind of a variety of studies that go through what the risks are. None of them are great studies. The Wong study is kind of interesting because uh, they actually look at it was in a flu patient and they look at the airflow patterns on the patient's ward and when the patient was on non-invasive and how often different patients got sick. And so they link non-invasive in that patient's ward to the, uh, the nosocomial influenza outbreak. The chung all paper is one paper that I saw today um, from the original SARS outbreak where they treated, it was a small number of patients with non-invasive and they tested 100 102 out of 105 of the healthcare workers that interacted with the patients that were on non-invasive, and none of them tested positive for SARS, and they were monitored pretty closely. Uh, So that's kind of like the epidemiological data behind here, but there's another guy, uh, this uh, doctor who, who has a HPS simulator where he basically blows smoke out of a patient's lung at different types of tidal volumes and then measures it's sagittal and horizontal dispersion to get an estimate of what aerosol dispersion of different, with different types of respiratory support would be. So this is an experiment he did with a non-invasive mask, um, purposefully with a mask leak. And he showed that, uh, so the dark blue area is where your risk of exposure is less than 10% to the the smoke or whatever would be aerosolizing. So, and that's about 0.25 meters away from the patient. You can see when there's a mask leak, you have two distinct jets of exposure. And there also is more horizontal exposure when you have a mask leak as compared to when you do not. Either way, those distances are still pretty small. In that same experiment, he used a non-invasive mask and he increased the amount of support that he gave the the mannequin. So this is just the heat map for the 18 over four setting and that the radius of that cloud is about 150 millimeters and it's 300 centimeters above the patient There are similar heat clouds for the 14 over four and 10 over four uh the for for comparison the 14 over four that radius is 125 centimeters the graph on the right is a measurement of uh how far out the uh the patient is, how far out that dispersion is from the patient horizontally. Uh, And you can see that at about 200 uh, millimeters from the patient, that risk drops to less than 10%, especially if they're on 14 over 4 or 10 over 4, although it is a little bit different in each direction. He did another study where he looked at nasal CPAP. And you can see in those dispersions as well, it's all under 400 millimeters with the nasal CPAP with well fitting CPAP. Uh, And that in severe lung disease, the amount of dispersion is less than as you have higher, uh, as you have better lungs and usually higher volumes. This year, or last year at this point, he did a study with high flow nasal cannula, which is especially relevant right now. Where he looked at high flow nasal cannula at different flow rates as well as different types of lung injuries. As we would expect, based on what we've seen so far, the highest dispersion was on high flow nasal cannula with healthy lungs. and that was seven hundred mls at a respiratory rate of twelve. There were a couple other things that were different. And our lowest dispersion was at ten liters per minute of high flow nasal cannula support um, with severely injured lungs. But you can see the more, the lower support, the less dispersion there was. One thing that we might be able to do, and this was all with well-fitting high flow, if you had a leak around the high flow, you would have um, a dispersion of about 620 millimeters. So it's really important, I think, that all these things are well-fitting. One thing we can do to attenuate this is to use a mask. In a normal cough that they simulated, the dispersion was mostly ahead in the sagittal plane, and then with masks decreased markedly in the sagittal plane. One place it did not go without a mask was in the horizontal plane. So it didn't go out to the sides of the patient. The surgical mask and the N95 mask both caused uh, more horizontal dispersion of the virus, but a well-fitting or an N95 mask will attenuate that horizontal dispersion that you get from the surgical mask. And that, as opposed to the other graphs we've looked at, this one is measured in centimeters as opposed to millimeters. So we can see it's still 30 millimeters transverse with a surgical mask, which is still under our one meter distance between beds or uh, six meter distance around patients. So the good people at Vapotherm recognizing that they're, uh, that their respiratory treatment would be is pretty helpful in these patients, decided to do a study looking specifically at vabotherm and specifically what happens with a mask with and without vabotherm. So this is a therapy, uh, this is no therapy with a mask, and this is no therapy um, without a mask. And this is a measure of the velocities of kind of the air that the patient's exhaling. So you can see no therapy without a mask and no therapy with a mask don't look all that different. But when you put a mask on high flow nasal cannula, it causes a big difference in terms of uh, how fast that air comes out. One of the other things that changes is uh, the based on this fluid dynamics model is how much leak there is around the mask. So with no therapy, there's or with no therapy with just no therapy, there's a leak of 11.6% based on this fluid dynamics model around the mask versus 16.5% with the high flow. But importantly, you can see that all of it basically stays or more of it stays around the patient based on the leak. And lastly, this is a measurement of particle trajectory. It's not a patient, you know, just spitting colors. each line is less than 0.1% of the total particle mass. The red is the highest particles, the yellow is the medium, and blue is the smallest. And again, you can see with the mask, most of the leak comes off and back towards the patient, rather than out and up towards the room. This is probably the most important graph that, uh, the most important figures that come out of that paper, the other ones just kind of look cool, which is that with a mask on 40 liters of high flow, of the particles get caught in the mask, which is more than on oxygen Uh, and less than with no therapy. 1% ish of the particles are trapped near the patient, but 16% are more than a meter away from the patient versus six liter versus on the six liters where it's like 7%. So the, Non-invasive mask or the this is a surgical mask. Someone asked uh for the vapotherm research what kind of mask. I believe it was a surgical mask. Again, it was the um so the smaller bore cannula was specifically for the uh Cammy said it was a smaller cannula that was specifically, I believe, for the CO2 clearance section, and they did it on 40 liters. So 16% went a meter away from the patient. So it's important to keep in mind that we have to know where our zones of safety are. So for objective number two, our non-invasive and high flow are gonna be important modalities for managing this. And we have to use the information we have to use them safely, Uh, but be careful when we're near the patient. Uh, So a lot of us have been bored at home. This guy counted all the holes in his laundry basket. So one thing that I think has been really excited to come out of this that I've been really excited by is uh, awake proning. So this is the process of putting patients who are on CPAP or non in, uh, any kind of non-invasive or high flow or, or even just regular oxygen in the prone position. So we all think proning works probably based on the Perseva study or the Perseva study indicated to us that proning works. It improved mortality, it improved the... Uh, ICU length of stay and improved our ventilation three days. We don't have to belabor Proceva. Um, The physiology of proning was really interesting in that basically what's happened is when you flip patients over, you're changing the pyramid shape of the lungs and the rectangular shape of the chest to having the base of the pyramid higher. And that's because the posterior, the dorsal part of the thorax is has a lower compliance and therefore you get more uniform ventilation of the lung unless you mismatch. So we can see the effect of high flow on the uniformity of lung ventilation and improvement in, in expiratory lung volumes. So with 20 volunteers uh, we can see that in phase one is room air, phase two is with high flow nasal cannula, and phase three is back to room air. In phase, uh, they did this in the supine and the prone position. So they took 20 volunteers in the supine position, they had them breathe room air, they gave them high flow nasal cannula, and then they did it again in, on room air, and they also did that in the prone position. Both positions with high flow nasal cannula had increases in their um, lung impedance, but the respiratory rate decreased going from phase one to phase two uh, in, in these studies. The more interesting thing as it relates to this concept is how that increase was distributed. So in the, prone, in the supine position, hyponasal cannula increased EELI more, but it was preferentially distributed toward the ventral regions of the lungs. In the prone position, there was almost complete uniformity with how that improvement was distributed from the ventral to the dorsal lungs which tells us that there's a more uniform improvement of ventilation of the lungs. In 2015, there's a retrospective study of 15 patients, 13 out of the 15 had pneumonia, and they underwent 43 proning procedures uh, for three hours. They lasted about three hours for twice a day. They were all on a variety of different oxygen masks or oxygen supports, including masks, high flows, helmet CPAP, mask non-invasive, and they all had improvements with their PaO2 and their uh, hemoglobin saturation when going from the supine to the prone position. And not everyone stayed on their same oxygen therapies uh, when they were, were prone, but even amongst those that stayed on the same settings when they were prone, they also derived benefit. We didn't see any hemodynamic, respiratory rate, pH, or PaCO2 uh, negative effects in these patients. And the effect did not last beyond the period of proning. So there's some physiological basis. There's laboratory evidence that they uh, that this improves oxygenation at least for a period of time. So is there a clinical benefit? So Ding et al. studied 20 patients who had a P to F of less than 200 on non invasive with a P of 5 on 0.5 uh, of FiO2 for at least 30 minutes. And then they took them back down to high flow and they had a stepwise escalation algorithm for going from high flow nasal cannula to high flow nasal cannula with prone position to non invasive to non invasive with prone position. Uh, they would prone patients for as long as they could tolerate it without, uh, and then they would flip them back over and they were monitored pretty closely by RTs every 15 minutes. They had a 15% Uh, intubation rate for their cohort, and 11 out of 20 had a viral pneumonia. So this wasn't they compared some, you know, one cohort that got prone to another that did not. They said we have a predicted rate of 15, of 75%. As it turned out, their total rate of intubation was 45%. So they had a decrease of 30% in their total intubations. Their goal was to maintain the patient's SATs at 90%. And if they couldn't maintain, if they were less than 90% for more than 10 minutes, they escalated their care. So uh, looking at the patients, there were 11 patients in the success group and nine in the failure group who ended up getting intubated. In the success group, each progressive stepwise escalation of care resulted in an improvement in their P to F. I think some of this was probably fueled by a couple of outliers, like here and here, but overall, there's an improvement in every step with their escalation of care. The failure group had no such improvement, and this was um, had no such improvement with their escalation of care. The patients in the success group had higher initial P to Fs and higher initial SATs, so they may have just isolated a group that was either healthier at baseline, or while not statistically significant, they were able to prone more often for more days, so they may just have been more tolerant of proning. Um, No one, when we look back at who was successful, who had a P to F of less than 100 of non-invasive, successfully avoided intubation. So that tells us something about who to and who not to include when we do this. This technique has been applied in COVID uh, on places besides just Twitter. This is a protocol out of China where they took 610 patients um, and they had an early warning system. And I tried to email the authors. I couldn't find them. I tried to email them through the Annals of Intensive Care uh, of uh, Internal Medicine. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get in touch with them that way either to find out exactly what went into their um what went into their early warning system that differentiated patients between high risk and low risk patients low risk patients were monitored twice daily and high risk patients had continuous monitoring patients that had a respiratory rate of more than 30 sats of less than 93% on room air or a heart rate greater than 120 got escalated to critical care three things happened when they got escalated to critical care they got placed on non invasive or high flow they didn't further delineate how they chose which. They had restrictive fluid resuscitation and they were awake prone. Their intubation rate was less than 1%. Their um, discharge rate of condition alleviation, as they put it, was 96.67% versus the Hubei region mortality, which was 4.34%. So this is might be, I look at it with some suspicion, Uh, a viable model of how to move forward if we can effectively risk stratify our patients. So who should we do this to? I think we should do this with patients who are grossly stable, who are able to self-adjust, and not in profound distress. We shouldn't do this with patients with a P to F of less than 100 on non-invasive, And maybe we shouldn't do it on patients that have a respiratory acidosis since those were excluded from the DING study. Uh, A lot of the case studies on this have used light sedation on patients that otherwise couldn't tolerate it, and so I think that's probably an okay thing to do. And we should probably do it for a few hours every day, a few times a day. So objective number three, awake proning is a viable technique to help oxygenate these patients. It has physiological and experimental evidence that demonstrate uh, the benefit. So I think it's something that we should incorporate into our management of these patients. You guys have any questions? Oh, um, I'm looking at the chat box. I don't hear anything. Is there a way to unmute everybody or unmute some people?
0: So, Gordo. Um, yeah. So you were so there are recommendations that we therapeutically anticoagulate all COVID patients, not just the ones who are in DIC or at high risk.
1: You mean uh, the ISTH guidelines? Yes. Yeah, they said they said consider it.
0: I mean, we gotta start off somewhere, wouldn't we? Want to do the people with d dimers that are over six times upper limit and normal or something?
1: Yeah, I think to me that
0: sounds That's where really the money was.
1: Yeah, I think that sounds to me really reasonable as a reasonable as a place to start. Uh, but I, could, I can double-check and get back to you, Dr. Shanholtz. Um, Dr. Hines asked, uh, how long should we leave them prone, And I think two to four hours. I read something online yesterday uh, about someone, they left their patient, I think, awake-prone for 18 hours, and then their fistula clotted off because they put pressure on it. So I think we have to make sure that these patients are, pay- are able to self-adjust and that we're keeping a uh, close eye on them. Any other questions? Do we have a better handle on the path of fizz? Is adelec trauma the reason for progression? So I think I'm going to try to go through that next week. Um, I don't know... I think there's a lot of people who are coming up with a lot of different answers. Some of the, um, histology and patho and the autopsy data shows stuff that looks like ARDS. Um, so I, I don't know what the exact answer is as to what the pathophysiology is as to why they're getting worse. One theory is that it's related to all the microthrombi and maybe they'll do better if we can decrease the, uh, if we can improve their coagulation profile.
0: Hey, Gordo. Yeah. Do you think that the patients who have these ridiculously elevated D-dimers who have disproportionate hypoxemia should get scanned for PEs to determine if we should increase their um, anticoagulation from just prophylactic to uh, treatment dose anticoagulation?
1: So, I think you, that's a really good question. I don't know that there's a definite evidence-based answer to that question. Um, On our, in the case study of the patients who got DVTs, or in the case series of patients who got DVTs, um, they all had elevated D-dimers, and the one with the lowest D-dimer, his D-dimer, spiked. I think that we probably, if we see a big spike in D-dimer or uh, that, that prompts us to anticoagulate or a sudden change in our oxygenation, it's probably not unreasonable. Part of the, you know, one thing that we might have done would be to echo them, but if they have hypoxic vasoconstriction or they have, uh, they're developing right heart strain for another reason, you know, that probably doesn't help us figure it out. So I don't have an evidence-based answer for you for that question. I think they probably should just get anticoagulated unless there's a real, they have a real set of risks with it and then maybe those are patients that we should scan. Uh, Dr. Brown asked, do I think there's two distinct phenotypes of ARDS versus a high compliance disease? From what I'm reading, I don't know. It sounds like people, more people who, when they get sicker or getting worse, or when they get intubated, they develop worse ventilation with these really high peeps. So maybe staying away from really high peeps is, is a better solution. And just supporting their respiration with, with, minimal, with minimal support is better.
0: Anything else? Gordo, I think that was awesome. You did a really nice job. I very much appreciate you synthesizing the literature for us. Oh, let's see, Mike McCurdy. Evidence for ECMO.
1: Uh, I have no evidence for ECMO one way. Ooh, that reminds me, one way or the other. Also, our uh, Marilyn Crooker, Pro- oh, our Maryland Crew Care Project team has put together a nice summary of stuff. I'm trying to filter things as I get them. Uh, Dr. Teeter over on the trauma side is putting together a section on the ECMO outcomes. This is actually a kind of a really cool initiative because it's fellows and residents from all over the hospital. We um, have Lucas, uh, Dr. Sklaja from the emergency department. It's most, most of the critical care and palm crit fellows, but even the trauma fellows are doing it. So we have a lot of people contributing, which is really great. Um, if you find an article that you think is really helpful, shoot me an email with like three points, and I will upload it on the site so that we can keep filtering and uploading literature for everybody so that all the people who are, uh, who are in the trenches can be updated on what's going on. Uh, yeah, Dr. McCurdy, go ahead.
2: Yeah, uh, can you all hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Um, Yes, just so everyone listening regarding uh, what Gordo is saying about the website, uh, the thought is, you know, there are various resources uh, currently out there through the various medical societies, um, and so we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, However, in talking with my friends in New York and other places that are hard hit, the uh, you know, they barely have time to read two paragraphs on something even that may be relevant to them just because they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. So um, one of the intentions of this, after this, um, these initial summaries that were, you know, well-written by uh, our fellows and others um, is to provide a, uh, a, basically a review, each each uh, participating person of owns a particular category or topic. And um, analyzing that topic, they just uh, pick out whatever publications pertain to it and just have three to five bullet points, and that's it. And just have, you know, if the PDF is available for free, have that link, and then three to five bullet uh, points, along with like the PubMed link or whatever, um, just so that everyone can stay on top of the literature as it's constantly rolling out and evolving because you know uh anchoring ourselves to a specific recommendation may be you know uh the wrong move even in a week from now so um kind of uh providing just factual um information from those new newly released studies is is kind of where our head is with that so if anyone uh, to gordo's point if anyone wants to uh you know, participate and contribute in, in your own way to all the people that really need this information in real time out there. Um, it's, please, please uh, reach out to him. It's our way to contribute before we get hit hard.
1: Um, very quickly, uh, Dr. Agamin Fahid asked um, if there's any difference between the, um, the full face mask versus the nasal um CPAP uh, for for COVID. So the nasal CPAP you can see had dispersion rates that were higher than the full face mask. The most important thing with any of them is that they fit well. But if you have the full face mask that fits well, the risk of error there's no leakage around the sides of the mask. It's all it all comes from the designed. Uh, the design ports that are made this uh, plume right here that are actually designed into it. So they require a viral filter. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Thanks guys.
0: Thank you, Gordo. We very much appreciate it. We will see you next week for the second part of your update. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.